0: Looking at the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books commonly referred to as Torah or the law um, because they contain uh, most significantly the commands of God, the laws of God to his people, but there is much more in them than that. And As we come to the book of Exodus, we probably come in many ways to the most popular and famous of these five books because it is the book that the reads a bit more like an action movie and it is without a doubt the movie the book that people have made the most movies about outside of the Gospels and the life of, of Jesus. Um, so it's an exciting book it has action it has drama and, and so we are drawn to it um, and then it and then it gets into heavy parts and we're like why why am I reading this um, But this is a book that takes place. It begins about 350 years after the events we talked about last week. And it begins like this. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So as we looked at the book of Genesis last week, one of the things that we saw was that the kind of overarching theme of the book of Genesis is that God was going to redeem his precious, prized creation, human beings made in his image through a royal seed who was to come. And the book of Genesis uh, uh, traces this royal line from Adam and Eve, through Noah, through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob. And we start to see uh, it coming to fruition. Uh, Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, is is raised almost to the same level as the king of Egypt, the pharaoh. And, And he is ruling Egypt and blessing the nations. God wanted to bless the nations by uh, but through this line, through this line that would culminate in the Messiah, who is Jesus the Christ. And so it, we start off in the book of Exodus and we think, ah, it's coming true. That generation has passed away, but the land has multiplied. Uh, the, the people in the land have multiplied. God had promised that they would become a numerous people and continue to bless the nations. And so our first thought is, this is coming true. And then we read in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to the people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so from that first paragraph to the second paragraph, we we might read what's what's going on? We thought these were were God's people, that they were blessed by God, that God's favor was on them, and they'd grown and multiplied, and, and wouldn't they be prosperous? And we might be asking, is the blessing of God dead? Is the plan of God dead? Well, it wasn't. And we'll quickly see that. But we understand here that the plan of God does not always follow a movie script. And it does not always follow the desires of the human heart. It is always, not always success and prosperity as the world defines it. And so as we, we begin to dig into the book of Exodus, let me suggest that what this book is all about, and, and we, will, we will bring this uh, full circle here by the end, is that God redeems a people by revealing himself. God redeems a people by revealing himself. That's really what the book of Exodus is all about, is that God is calling a people to himself, and he does it by making himself known. And that might be the one central theme of the book of Exodus is the knowledge of God. Who is God? Who is Yahweh? So the people are standing there and they are in Egypt and they are suffering under uh, the rule of Pharaoh. We don't know the exact history here the the archaeology and the details are a little bit vague from this point point. one suggestion and it, it seems reasonable because it, it happens about this point in time is we know that there was a time when uh, the Egyptians were actually ruled by conquered by a Semitic people uh, the Jews are were Semites the Hebrews were Semites descendants of Shem. That's where we get the term anti-Semitism. And so there was an ethnic group that was ruling Egypt that was more closely associated with the Jewish people. And it would make sense that during that time period they might have been friendly to some Hebrews like Joseph and his family. We know that that dynasty was eventually overthrown and the Egyptian uh, leadership would have been very wary very suspicious of anyone coming from that ethnic background. And so that might correspond, we, but we don't know for sure. Uh, but it's a, a conjecture that fits with history about why suddenly there's a king who's not familiar with Joseph and all of the blessing that he bestowed upon Egypt and why they would now feel threatened by these Jewish people in their midst. But God was not prepared to allow his people to simply languish in slavery in Egypt. And so we see the arrival and the birth of a child named Moses. In fact, the Pharaoh had gotten so animated in his hatred toward the Jewish people that what he did was enact a rule that they would kill all of the male children. The idea would be that that would limit the population and keep them from continuing to spread and multiply and grow. And the little boy is, is born. His mother can't bear to have him put to death. And so she puts him in a, in a basket, seals the basket with bitumen, basically asphalt, so that it's waterproof, throws it on the Nile, and hopes for the best. This little baby is found by the daughter of Pharaoh when she is going out to, to bathe. And as it was, she sees a little child helpless and in need, and she can't resist. The child's sister, though, had, um, older sister, had gone and kind of followed the basket as it traveled down the river at a distance. And when she saw that Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter had, had taken the child, she ran up to the woman and said, hey, would you like me to get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? She said, yes, and, and, the, and uh, the child's sister went and got the child's mother to be the child's nurse the pharaoh's daughter named the child Moses and when he comes of age he grows up in the household of the king with all the privileges and all of the glories that would have come from pharaoh's household but when he comes of age he does something striking It says in verse 11 of chapter 2, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. This is an interesting event because it says two things about Moses. It tells us, first of all, that this, this idea of, of leaving the, the king's household and coming down to see how his people were doing, he's associating with the oppressed and burdened Israelites instead of associating with the house of Pharaoh. He's forsaking his privilege and his rights and his royalty to be with his people. And at great personal cost, too by killing this Egyptian who was striking one of the Hebrew people. Of course, he had no right to do that, and that's the second thing it tells us about Moses, is that although his motivation may have been right, he desired justice. But God never demands vigilantism. And so Moses becomes a murderer, and when he realizes that he has been found out and that his crime is known, he flees to the wilderness. But God's not done with him. And when Moses is in the wilderness, he gets married. Uh, he, he is in the land of Midian, uh, east and north of Egypt. And one of the most famous stories in the book of Exodus takes place in chapter 3. It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You might remember from last week that one of the promises that God had made in his covenant to Abraham is that his descendants, Abraham's descendants, would inherit the land of Canaan. But not right away. And God is now telling Moses that he is going to make good on that promise and he is going to use Moses to bring it about. But Moses, it's been, you know, 300 and... 90 years, 300, and, uh, 400 years, 420 years uh, at this point, And he has some hesitations about this. And I imagine you might too. He's been raised in Pharaoh's house, he's been raised with Pharaoh's deities, with Pharaoh's gods. He's been raised in Pharaoh's culture, and yet he knows his culture and he's tried to identify with it. But he has a really good question, which is who is God? Who is God? Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Israel? And he says, God says, but I will be with you. Moses is realizing, I am a little man. I may have been raised in Pharaoh's house, but I am nobody significant. I'm a murderer. I have fled. But God says, I will be with you. Then Moses says to God, if I I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And one of the most important verses in the entire book, in 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said to Moses, say This to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This name, Lord, you see in your Bibles in in small caps, L-O-R-D, but it's not lowercase, it's uppercase. And there's a reason for that. That is, it stands for the name that God gives in this passage. And we're not 100% sure how it was originally pronounced, which is one of the reasons why we've traditionally rendered it Lord in all capital letters. But it was something like Yahweh. And the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, is, it comes from that to be verb. So God says, I am who I am. Another way that that can be translated is, I will be who I will be. Or you could mix that and say, I am who I will be, or I will be who I am. In other words, this God, Yahweh, is different than all the other gods of Egypt. All the other gods of the Canaanites, all the other gods of the world. He is the one who exists. He is the existing God as opposed to all the other claimants to the title God who are false and non-existent. He is real. He is unchanging. And he is supreme. And so this is the first revelation of God in the book of Exodus. He makes himself known to Moses and he is going to make himself known to the Hebrew people. And he tells Moses to go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. And they will listen to your voice, And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. So Moses is given a mission. Now, he, he protests. He has two problems. He doesn't think he has authority. After all, he's left Pharaoh's home, and he is recognized as a murderer, even among his own people. He's concerned about his own authority, and he's also concerned about his own competency. And so God gives him two gifts. God gives him the ability to perform miracles, to demonstrate that he comes in God's name that he comes and he represents God's authority. Moses himself won't have authority, but God will have authority, and God's authority will be demonstrated through Moses. And secondly, he gives Moses a speaker. Moses is afraid that he is not competent as a speaker. Some have suggested that perhaps what he is saying is that he was a stutterer. But God says, I know that your brother Aaron is a good speaker. I will send you Aaron, and you will go together And you will act like God to Aaron, and Aaron will be like a prophet of you. And so then we move into chapter 5, and we get this opening salvo. Uh, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say that God, the Lord, wants you to let his people go and celebrate a feast to him. And Pharaoh's complaint in verse 5 of chapter 5 is this. Who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. It's the central question again of this book, who is Yahweh, that I should listen to him? And the result of this is that Pharaoh places harder and harder burdens on the Hebrew people, and Moses is despondent. I thought I was supposed to go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh would Pharaoh would uh, would let these people go. Isn't this what, what you told me, God? And God reiterates to Moses who he is and what he's going to do for his people. And that kind of takes us to the, the second section of the book of Exodus. In the second section of the book of Exodus, we have Moses and Aaron going before Pharaoh repeatedly to bring about judgment on Egypt. The goal, though, isn't per se judgment. The goal of this is to know who is Yahweh. There's 11 signs done before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I know you think about 10 plagues, but there's an incident prior to that. Um, there's, there really are 11 signs that are done before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 11 opportunities for him to repent and free Israel. It's interesting, the request is not for the Israelites to go free. The request is for the Israelites to have the freedom to go and worship Yahweh the way Yahweh deserves to be worshipped. But God knows that in making this demand, it's going to lead to the uh, Israelites finally being completely Free. And if you turn over to chapter 7, verse 5, God makes it clear what the point of this is. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. You go down to verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you will know that I am Yahweh. This is the first of what we oftentimes call as plagues. The, the, the passage begins with Moses doing uh, a relatively harmless act. He has a staff that's been given... To, uh, been blessed by God. So when he throws the staff to the ground, it, can, it turns into a serpent. And Pharaoh is somewhat impressed, and he gets his magicians. And his magicians of Pharaoh's court are able to do the same trick, whether by secret arts or by uh, sleight of hand. We, we don't know. We're not told. Uh, but Moses' serpent consumes, eats the snake's of the magicians, but Pharaoh is not impressed, and he rejects them. And this is when they start to get serious. The that first act there is that uh, God, through Moses, turns all the waters of Egypt to blood. Uh, whether it was a dark blood color or literally blood, uh, the Hebrew word can mean both. But the point is, is that the water became undrinkable. It led to the dying off of many animals, and it created a stench throughout the land. And God says that by that, they will know that I am the Lord. You hear this theme. God is going to prove to Egypt who he is. He is making himself known. These plagues follow uh, a number of them. There's there's blood in the water, and then a, a plague of frogs comes upon the land. When Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and continues not to listen, there's a plague of gnats or uh, probably more likely mosquitoes. There's a plague of flies. There's a plague uh, plague that falls on the livestock so that many of the livestock die. There's a plague of boils so that the people are in great pain. Time and time again, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, refuses to relent. And then you get to, the, uh, there's a break here in the this, in this seventh plague. There's something interesting that we see happening. Remember what God has said, by this you will know that I am the Lord. When we move over to chapter 9, verse 16, and, and through Moses, God threatens that he is going to bring a tremendous hail on the people of Egypt. And so in, in, verse, uh, in verse 9, 16, it says, but for this purpose speaking to Pharaoh I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth I think about that for a moment what God is saying is that the point of what he is doing in the book of Exodus But the point of what he is doing in bringing the Jewish people out of Egypt has much more to do with himself than it has to do with the Jews. It has much more to do with himself than with Egypt. It has to do with making his name great in the entire world. He is revealing himself and making himself known across the entire globe through this act. And so he says, Behold, this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And then don't miss verse 20 in chapter 9, because it's really a miracle that's happening. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. God was becoming known to the Egyptians. And these servants in Pharaoh's house are believing Yahweh and not Pharaoh. And they're bringing their slaves and their livestock inside because they've figured out that Yahweh is the real deal. They've become believers in the word of God Subsequent plagues, because Pharaoh continues to not relent, there's a plague of locusts and then darkness over the land of Egypt, except where the Jewish people are, and then comes the threat of the plague of the firstborn. The final and last uh, sign that God does on Egypt, the, the one that is going to set in motion the freedom of the Hebrews once and for all, is that God warns Pharaoh that he is going to kill the firstborn of every house in Egypt, of every cow in Egypt, of every lamb in Egypt, of every beast, of every slave, of everyone, high or low in Egypt. Except, God says, if my people will do the following. And he initiates what has become known as the Passover. He tells his people to prepare. He says, because this sign is going to be so bad that after it happens, Egypt will demand that you leave and that you leave for good. So get ready for it. And God tells his people what he wants them to do. Among other things, he wants them to take the blood of a lamb. He wants them to take, each family, to take one lamb. And if they're too small of a family for a lamb, then they should get together with their neighbors and share a lamb. And they're going to take this lamb and they are going to slaughter it. They're going to roast it over fire. And they're going to take some of the blood of that lamb and they are going to smear it over the doorpost of their house. They're going to eat this meal in a hurry because when night falls, they are going to leave. They're not going to wait till morning. They are ready to go. They're going to roast it. They're going to eat it with bitter herbs because it is a bitter meal. And they are going to eat it with unleavened bread because there's not time for the dough to rise. And when night falls, God strikes the firstborn of every house in Egypt over which his angel does not see the blood of the lamb. And so there's a, just as with the hail, we see it here, those who obeyed the word of God are going to find salvation in this moment. And those who rejected the word of Yahweh were not going to find salvation in this moment. The Passover feast, of course, becomes the model the sign that points forward to that seed, that descendant that we talked about in the book of Genesis that we're tracing here through Exodus even, of Jesus the Christ. That we too are under a curse like Egypt was. Our curse that we are under is our sin Our rebellion against God We have done things to dishonor our creator And we know we have done things to dishonor our creator And those things put us under a curse A curse that is deserving of death And not just a death in this life But an eternal death away from God in hell But God is the consummate rescuer Just as he wouldn't leave his people in Israel, he wouldn't leave his creation in sin without a way out. And so Jesus was God in the flesh. He came and lived among us. And he offered his life as a Passover lamb for us. So that on the day of judgment, over the door of every heart that God finds smeared the blood of Jesus, God's judgment will pass over them and they will be saved. And that promise is available to everyone that by believing on what Christ did on the cross, you too might be saved From God's furious wrath. The result of this plague is devastation throughout Egypt. So happy are the Egyptians at this point uh, to get rid of the Israelites. We read in chapter 12 verse 36. Going back a verse, the... uh, the, the people of Israel had also done what Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Plundering is usually a, uh, a, a word that we use in war, right? You, you go to war, and when you conquer your enemy, you plunder their goods. You take everything that is theirs that you want. The Israelites haven't fought a war. They haven't done battle, but God has been doing battle on their behalf, so much so that they simply asked the Egyptians for gold and for silver and clothing, and the Egyptians just say take it and get out of here. But then also look at verse 38 in chapter 12. And the people journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. A mixed multitude means that this was not merely ethnic Hebrews that left Egypt with Moses. There were people of all different sorts of cultures and ethnicities and backgrounds and races that saw the works of God and said, I want to be on his side. He is Yahweh. He is the great I am. He is the existing one. And I don't know what I've been doing all these years in Egypt, worshipping Ra and Osiris and Amet and all these other deities, but Yahweh is for real. I think we have this idea that, uh, that the Jewish people of the Old Testament, Testament was this sort of, I, I don't know, we have this weird modern idea of ethnic purity, which would have been, I think, foreign to an ancient world. It's just not what the text says. It was a mixed multitude that comes out of Egypt in fact we we know very soon thereafter Moses is going to marry a a woman from Cush or Ethiopia or Nubia Uh, you know so there there is a they don't take a trip to Ethiopia where did where did they meet her she probably came out of Egypt with them a a sub-Saharan African this is a mixed multitude and the people of God were a mixed multitude and so God bought a people out of slavery. God bought a people out of slavery. The next several chapters of the, of the book of Exodus, though, talk about the difficulties of what it looks like to be God's people. They've been rescued, and God's rescue is final and it is good, but there are still threats along the way almost immediately problems arise for the Israelites. God tells them to camp between Egypt and the Red Sea, and Pharaoh thinks that they are confused. And so the Israelites themselves think that they are dead. They are trapped between Egypt and the Red Sea. They start to complain, but God uses this moment to miraculously deliver the Israelites. You're probably familiar with the parting of the Red Sea. God really sends one last judgment on Egypt. Pharaoh regrets that he let the Israelites go despite all the things that he has seen. He pursues them with his chariots. He pursues them with his army, and the Israelites are trapped with their backs at the Red Sea, but God has destined it for their deliverance. In the middle of the night, God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites walk across dry ground, and as the Egyptian army tries to follow them across. God swallows the sea back over them and destroys the armies of Pharaoh. And the people of God celebrate in song as their great enemy, Egypt, is done for good. It's a picture of baptism for us who are Christians. That what has been good as done in in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in passing over the sins that we had committed and giving us eternal life, now we mark the passage from death to life in the safety of a baptism. Having been brought out of Egypt, having been rescued from our sins, we are baptized And we are now dead to sin, as the Egyptians were essentially, sin was dead to them. Egypt was dead to them. But they faced other tests in this stretch of the book of Exodus. At times they lacked water. At times they lacked food. They are threatened with the Amalekites, a people who wants to go to battle against them. But these tests serve to help them learn to trust God. Uh, Doug Stewart writes in his commentary on the book of Exodus, God was treating them in a way that has always been difficult for people to accept. He was not telling them everything they wanted to know. He told them what they needed to know in order to become his covenant people and in order to receive his salvation. They wanted to know much more, however, where to find water right away, how much longer this or that would last, how to be comfortable, how to avoid problems and dangers, and how to get out of unpleasant situations. Telling God how to do things and complaining about the things he does or doesn't do have always been popular enterprises. Enterprises. The Israelites on the way to Sinai did not hesitate To indulge in them. It's a reminder, though, that being part of God's people does not mean a life of comfort, a life of safety, a life of material prosperity, a life of good fortune. Those things may be there, they may not be there, but they're not part of the absolute promise of God in this life. God's people, even though blessed, must often endure trials. And only through trials are we to be the people of God, the the people that God has called us to be. So we can look at passages like Hebrews 12. should have marked that page. It's so far away. In Hebrews 12, uh, we are admonished. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The promise of scripture is that God disciplines his people. Those who had come out of Egypt and been rescued and saved and delivered needed to learn who God was, what God was like, and how to rely on him and him alone. And at times that testing was very difficult. Finally, they come to Mount Sinai, and at the Mount of Sinai, a covenant is presented. We, we spoke of covenants uh, a bit last week in the book of Genesis, and now a covenant is made with the people of Israel. It's a conditional covenant. The Israelites will become God's people because God has saved them. He has rescued them. He has delivered them. I saved you, God says. I am God. I am the existing one. So follow my laws and become my people. And if you follow my laws and if you follow my commands, I will be your God. You will be my people and I will bless you richly. This section takes place over several chapters and the first thing we see is this intimidating presence of God on the mountain. It's terrifying to the people, coming in smoke and fire and the sound of growing and swelling trumpets. And Moses goes up the mountain and he receives from God what we call the Ten Commandments. They were a summary form of all of God's commands, his law, his covenant with his people. They expressed the heart of God, what kind of God he was and what kinds of things he values. First and foremost, that he is the only God and so the Israelites should not have any other gods besides him. One, only one, and it's Yahweh. Secondly, that He can't be manufactured to look like something in heaven on earth. He would not put up with idolatry. There would be no statues of God, no statues of Yahweh, no no birds or cows or snakes that people would bow down to. No, he was unlike anything in the created order. He created everything and he was unlike everything and so his people were not to create images of him for their worship. And then he continues with a list of ethical standards about the kinds of things and the kinds of behaviors that should mark his people. Again, they were, they were mostly summary statements. And then in the, in the, after those Ten Commandments are given, he expounds on them at, at some length, focusing on, on a couple of areas, and what strikes you as you read through the, these laws of God is his high view on the sanctity of human life. As you read, uh, especially Exodus 20, 21, 22, I'll pull out two passages of value to you that express Again, remember going back to Genesis 1, God has created mankind in his image. And because he has created mankind in his image, they are of inestimable inestimable value. Uncountable value. And they are precious in his sight. And so their lives are to be treated with great care and reverence. And so we see in passages like uh, Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25, he's giving a case law. He's giving an example law. How do you apply the, the laws of, of um, he had been talking about how you, there, there must be a death penalty for those who commit murder. Well, what about a, a case, he says in verse 22, when men strive together and, and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. But there's no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That old admonition, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, is not a uh, a value of retribution. It's not a value of uh, violence. It's, a retrib- it's, a, it's an idea of proportionality. It's an idea that whatever the crime is, the punishment should meet the crime. Not more than that, because that would be unjust. Not less than that, that it would be unjust. But here we have the idea of a life for a life being applied directly to the case of violence being done such in a way that it causes an abortion. So precious is human life in God's eyes that it even extends to the womb. But so precious is human life in God's eyes that it even extends to those who are different than us. And so we can look at places like verses 21 and 24 of the same chapter. Or excuse me. Uh, chapter 21, yeah, chapter 21, verses 21 through 24. Sorry, that's not the right passage. Uh, 22, verses 21 through 24. Uh, and God says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. That's harsh and it extends to how the Israelites were to treat the foreigners who were in their midst. Foreigners in their midst, those who were other than them. They spoke a different language. They had a different culture. They didn't naturally belong among the people of Israel, but yet they were there were to be extended the same love and care and protection as even one of their own. There would be no room for ethnic or racial bias, no room for prejudice on the basis of difference so much was that the heart of God that all human beings were created in his image regardless of what they looked like or what they spoke like, that he had the strongest words to speak to those who would violate that principle. And so you can see no matter what form or shape or whatever human convention we might put on it, God put a high value on the sanctity of human life as ought his people today. Well, the people agree to these terms. They agree to these terms. They say, absolutely, this is the God who rescued us. We will serve him. And so Moses receives then from God a long and complicated list of instructions on how to construct a tabernacle. And this can be one of the most trying sections of this book Um, as you try to read it. But you need to know this is important stuff. Don't just skip over this stuff in your Bible reading. The detail of the tabernacle is important for so many reasons. Because God is telling Moses, and through Moses, the Israelites, how they will meet with him, and how they will worship him, and how he will be made known to him. And this tabernacle is, is filled with symbolism, that we don't have time to get into this morning, is it's filled with symbols from the Garden of Eden, like the cherubim and, and pomegranates that they skillfully and artistically work into the design of the fabric of the tabernacle, reminding them that, that this tabernacle will in some way uh, be an imperfect but a way to get back to God. Remember, they had lost fellowship with God in the garden. And, and so far, we've been seeing an attempt to get back into right relationship with God. And God is going to give them a piece of that, a place that's not the garden, but it's going to resemble the garden. It's going to remind them of the garden and where God will meet with his people. This tabernacle is in many ways luxurious. It's it's covered in precious metals like gold and silver and bronze and yet the tabernacle, it's mobile. It's designed to be picked up and moved. There's not a central sacred place. It's a reminder that God's presence is ultimately and most perfectly with his people wherever his people are. And inside the innermost sanctuary... The holy of holies, the most holy place it's called. What do we find? Well, in most of the the temples and tabernacles of the ancient world, we would find a statue of Ra. We'd find a statue of Baal. We'd find a a statue of Molech. (coughs) But not there. In the temple of the one true living God, Yahweh, in his tabernacle, there would be an ark, a chest. And in that chest would be things to remember his great deeds. And most importantly, in that chest would be a copy of his law. In the most holy place of the tabernacle would be placed God's word. God's word reveals who. He is and what he's like. And still today, this is the pattern of God's people. We are the people of God's word if we are Christ's followers. Just as the Israelites came out of Egypt by obeying God's word, God's word comes to them, they heard it, they believed it, and because they believed it, they were freed from Israel. So those who believe in the good news, God's word of the gospel, are freed from their sin and called into one new people. We meet God in his word. Do you want to know what God has to say to you? Do you want to hear God's voice? We come to God's word to hear his voice speaking to us. And it's in God's word that his character, his goodness, and his name is revealed to us. And so it is the center of our devotion. Not because it's words printed on a page. Because it is the very voice of the God who made us. The final chapters then of the book of Exodus reflect this challenge of what God is like and what his people will do with it. In chapter 32, the people make a golden calf. Moses has been up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights and the people are beginning to wonder whether he will ever come back. They don't know what's happened to him. And they pressure Aaron into making some gods for them who will go before them and lead them the rest of the way. And they make a golden calf. They take their jewelry. The jewelry, remember, that was the plunder of the Egyptians. The plunder that God had given them as they left Egypt. And they took these good gifts of God and they fashioned them into a golden calf image of a cow a cow was a popular symbol for a deity in the ancient near east and Aaron proclaims these are your gods these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt and then in a twisted perverted attempt to bring them back down to earth Aaron tries to marry this new religion to the worship of Yahweh he says tomorrow we'll hold a feast to Yahweh Here's your gods that brought you out of Egypt. Just days after they had agreed to follow God's law and follow God's word and to be his people, they have broken God's law. God tells Moses about it. Moses comes down. He smashes the Ten Commandments. He grinds the calf to dust, forces the, throws it in the water and forces the Israelites to drink of it. The Levites, on God's command, executed a number of Israelites who chose these new gods. Why did they do that? Well, they had to be removed from the people of God. Doug Stewart, in his commentary, helpfully argues that it wasn't that they just killed randomly, if you look at it in uh, chapter 32, verses 25 through 28, but they were really discovering who is loyal to Yahweh. And who's not? And we see one of the most important sections of the book of Exodus as Moses tries to make intercession, to be an intermediary between God and his people. Because his people are at risk of no longer being his people because they've broken the covenant. Remember, the covenant was conditional. It was conditional upon their obedience. God wants to destroy Israel in his anger, and Moses appeals to God's glory. If you look at chapter 32, verses 11 through 14. Helps if I'm in the right book. In chapter 32, verses 11 through 14, Moses says, he implores the Lord his God, implored the Lord his God and said, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them, consume them from the face of the earth? Do you hear what Moses is arguing before God? He says, God, if you destroy this people, What will the Egyptians, the Egyptians whom you magnified your name among, what will they think of you? Will they think that you are a weak and feeble God who cannot rescue his people but leaves them to die in the wilderness? God grants that. He decides he will not destroy his people. Then a second time, Moses asks for God to forgive Israel. So God has agreed not to entirely destroy Israel, but now Moses asks God to forgive Israel. God says no. He sends a plague. God's character has been revealed that he is the one who will by no means clear the guilty but he will punish sin. It would go against his character to allow sin to go unpunished. And so God commands Moses to lead them where they are going. And if we move to 33, we'll read the first five verses here. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Moses makes a third intercession. If you look at verse four there, it says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. Think about what God was saying to them. He's saying, Moses, take these people. I'm going to take you to that good land I told you. And it's going to be a great land, and I'm going to give it to you. But I won't be with you. And the people mourned because that was a disastrous word. These are a repentant Because suddenly we see that what was most important to these people was not God's good gifts, it was not an easy life, it was not a life of plenty, it was not a great land, it was not freedom, but what mattered to them was God himself. And they would rather have God himself than all of the good things of Canaan. Canaan. And so Moses makes a third intercession before them. He asks them to show, show me your ways, God. Go with us. I need you to go with us. And, and he appeals to God's glory again and God's presence, making him known among the nations. He says in verse 16 of, of, of chapter 33, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the whole earth. He says, how will people know how great you are, God, unless you are with us, and because you are with us, we're different. You are what makes us different. Not our land, not our language, not our culture, not our background. What makes us unique is our God, and we need you to be with us, God. God says, yes, and Moses says, show me your glory. There's been a lot of debate about what that means when, when Moses says to God toward the end of chapter 33, God, I need you to show me your glory. But God's glory is nothing less than a revelation of his character. It goes back to Moses' uh, part, part of this plea when he says, show me your ways, O God. Moses once to know God he wants to know God in a deeper and richer way he wants to know God's ways and his character and he needs to know that God is the kind of God who can forgive the kind of sin that Israel has committed and God agrees and God goes before Moses and he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock as he says Moses you can't really see me if you do, you would die. And I'm not going to let that happen to you. And he covers him in a cleft of a rock and goes before him and he proclaims his name. It says in, in chapter 34, verses 4 and following, so Moses, uh, excuse me, um, Moses did cut two tablets of stone. It says, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, He knew God's character. So then we have the final plea of Moses in verse nine, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And God says, Behold, I am making a covenant. God takes them again to be his people. Like like an adulterous wife who has gone astray and, and cheated on her husband, and the husband has said, I will forgive you and have you back. You are mine and you are still precious to me, and I am making a covenant with you. And so this covenant is renewed or restored. Moses returns with new tablets and, and the rest of the, the book shows their obedience to God in making good on this covenant. They construct the tabernacle precisely the way that God had explained it so that when we get to the end of the book of Exodus, they've got the, all the pieces and parts of the tabernacle uh, constructed It was a community effort. They assemble it. They put it together, put it together, and the book ends this way. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so God's presence was with them at the tabernacle in the midst of his people and they would know God. Well, God still is tabernacling among us. We might not. Realize that. We might miss it. But when we turn over to the book of John in the New Testament, we read this about Jesus. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt among us is like a verb form of the word tabernacle. He tabernacled among us he made his way among us. Notice the words that John chooses. Choose it carefully here. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Even as God made himself known to his people in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, so God makes himself known through the person of Jesus Christ. And in the person of Jesus Christ. Is grace and truth. Grace because our sins can be forgiven through the truth of what He did on the cross and His resurrection. If you want to know God, then you go to Jesus Christ who has revealed Him and made Him known. And all those who go. To the tabernacle, that is Jesus, will know God and be made his people. So the book of Exodus is a story of God revealing himself, not just to the Israelites, but to the world. And in revealing himself to them, he draws a people to himself, a mixed multitude of every language and every culture of every generation, of every skin color, of every background. He is calling them to himself by his great and mighty deeds in which he reveals his character. God redeems a people by revealing himself, and the good news for you is you can get in on that that you too can be part of the mixed multitude the wily and strange group of people that he has redeemed from all the nations on the earth by coming to his son, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you do not leave us to suffer in our sin, but you have embarked on a rescue mission and you have called us out of Egypt and sin and bondage and called us into a new people and a new life and a new light we thank you God that you have ransomed us we thank you God that you have forgiven us we thank you God that you have been patient with us and even not so easily thrown us away when we have broken faithfulness with you and we pray Father that we would sink our teeth deeply into the riches of what you have done throughout history to bring about a Savior, Jesus, who reveals you to us. And we pray that you would bring people, that you would bring more and more people into this people that you call your church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As you're able, I invite you to stand and and sing a song of praise with us.